We're going to do a Theology Unplugged. Don't tell anybody. I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael Patton, and we are doing a special session right now. It is 10 o'clock at night, and I'm doing it this time simply to test something. Um, Not that this is an important podcast right now, but it's just uh, I'm still testing out all my new equipment. I've gotten so much new equipment, and some of you guys have helped out, made this possible, so thank you so much. But uh, we're going to, I'm testing it out. We're going to get on a schedule very soon. And this schedule will be set to where Theology Unplugged comes out at a certain time, certain segments as well of Theology Unplugged. We've got new segments being introduced after this one. Uh, you know a few, a couple of them, but we're going to have some new segments and we're going to schedule them. And then uh, on my Patreon, we're going to vote on them and see which segments you like the best and try to you know, zero in on those. But we'll still have multiple types of segments. This one is just a regular Theology Unplugged. I want to talk about apologetics. Before I do that, make sure you subscribe. Uh, need to have as many people subscribe as possible from wherever you're at. That's how this thing spreads, at least so I'm told. The algorithm works in such a way. So make sure you you like or subscribe wherever you're at. And also, just don't forget, the way we are supported is through our Patreon. So I'm going to put a QR code up here for those of you who can see it. Those of you who are just listening to this can't see it. You'll have to go to patreon.com forward slash c michael patton c michael patton christopher michael patton my first name is christopher my mom cursed me by going with my middle name so and and cursed me with c on my first uh uh, my first name so it's c michael p yeah i know uh but kids caught on to that early on Jarrett dutterman caught on to it mostly and he's the one who laughed the most Jarrett, if you ever listen to this um, I don't appreciate it. Okay. Um, but, uh, we are on Patreon. That is a place you can go to get extra stuff as well. There's all kinds of stuff on Patreon. Whenever you become a member, but that's how we get supported and I need your support, but enough of that. Let's go ahead and get started with the pro- podcast. I'm going to be talking about overstating apologetics. Now I've thought a lot about this and it is something that is very important to me. I want, I want uh, to talk about it more. I, as a matter of fact, I've uh, talked talked to a few of my apologetics friends and said we need to write a book about this, and they agreed. Uh, actually, just one of them agreed. <laughs> and I, actually, I just talked to one of them. I don't want to overstate myself here. That was a good one. That that's a good illustration. I overstated myself by saying I've talked to a few of my friends. I only talked to one, but he's an impressive guy. Uh, if you knew who he was, Paul Copan, and uh, he liked the idea of overstating apologetics. This was many years ago, but I, I, I don't write a book. I don't come up with an idea and then write it. I mean, I've got so, you should see my notes on my phones, how many books I have, how many books I have on my blog that I've written, but it's just, I never feel comfortable putting it together in such a way, except for a couple of my books. Uh, the Now that I'm a Christian book, that way I, I'm very proud of that, still proud of that, and uh, wouldn't change a thing, honestly. 
on now that I'm a Christian after, after 10 years. But overstating apologetics, let me tell you what that is. Basically, what I'm saying here is that sometimes we overstate ourselves whenever we are defending the faith. And the one thing I don't want you guys to think is to say that I'm saying somehow that our faith isn't as strong as we sometimes make it, but I think we overstate certain aspects of apologetics in certain areas, and those then we become we come looking dishonest whenever somebody else finds out or over eager to accept it whenever somebody else finds out the truth or the details behind the matter. I'm going to talk about three. I'm going to talk about prophecies of the Old Testament, talking about, you know, prophecies whenever we're talking, whenever we're, whenever we're dealing with Christ and whenever we're saying to people, hey, here's how we know that Christ is the Messiah. And we start st- uh, saying the prophecies. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a moment because it's very important. There's more to it than meets the eye. But I think sometimes we overstate it in a in a certain particular way, and it's not going to be effective with unbelievers. Matter of fact, it may be counter-effective. Uh, number two is the statistically statistical analysis of many things within our faith, meaning how likely the likelihood, say, of creation, the likelihood of the statistical likelihood of all of the elements coming together in the anthropological principle, which means all the elements coming together for life to happen. I think sometimes we state uh, overstate that simply because we don't know the what's going on in the, the objector's head. And there's different ways that we can put it. I'm not saying it's not strong. I'm just saying there's different ways we can put it. And I'll tell you what exactly is going through their mind when we say stuff like this. And then finally, something you don't think we can overstate. In a way, you can't overstate it, but we do. And that is the manuscripts of the Bible. Talk about those three here. I'm not going to talk in detail, too much detail about them all, but I am going to talk about each one. If you have any questions or anything, please put them in the chat. I'm putting the chat up here beside me so that I can see it. Just say hi if you can. That would be great. Uh, Love to to see you. But let's start with prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, what I mean here whenever I say we overstate our case apologetically, apologetics is the art and science of defending the Christian faith or really anything. It's not making an apology for something. It's not saying you're sorry for something. It is making a defense for the faith. And I love apologetics. Those of you who've been around me for a while, you know that I love apologetics, love theology more because theology is the bigger under umbrella. I think we need to study theology first so we know what we're defending, but I love apologetics because it, it's such an encouraging thing. It's so it's so great to be able to say we can use our minds 100% and the smartest person in the world can look at the the data, the evidence, and say that it, your faith in Christianity, your faith in Christ is warranted. Your faith that he rose from the dead, your faith in the Bible, it's all warranted. That is an encouraging thing. It's very difficult to live a life whenever you do have faith, but you don't think it's intellectually warranted. You know, this will cause what's called cognitive dissidence, where you believe you really believe one thing, that it's not warranted to believe this, 
and you live a different way. You're committed to it. So it's hard. It's hard to live that way. Did you know cognitive dissonance, that term didn't come out till recently. Somebody coined it, I think, in the 1960s. Anyway, don't need that. Don't need to know that. But let's talk about prophecies in the Old Testament. What I mean is when we, we'll, we'll say something like this. Did you know, I'm, I'm talking to an unbeliever now, okay? Did you know that there are over 600 prophecy, or excuse me, 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled? Um, and we say, you know, all of these prophecies came before, the, obviously, Jesus fulfilled them before the New Testament. These are all in the Old Testament. And so you have a long time period, from uh, really from creation of Adam and Eve, all the way until um, a few hundred years before Christ, where the Old Testament was written. And if you go through the Old Testament, all the different books, you'll find 300 prophecies about Christ. And then Christ fulfilled all of these exactly. Okay, that's, that's how we would present it. And I think this is how we would overstate it. It's not that Christ didn't fulfill all of these exactly. You've got to understand the uh, what, what a prophecy is and the umbrella that the term prophecy is. We usually think of prophecy as predictive prophecy. Something, whenever I use the word, whenever I say there are 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, I am saying predictive prophecy, okay? That's how we use it. But there, while there are 300 prophecies in a broad umbrella sense about Christ in the Old Testament. Hang with me, okay? I promise this is important. While there are over 300, they are not predictive prophecies in the same way we think of it, okay? Sometimes we will look at prophecies such as um, let's take Christmas time, whenever we go to Isaiah chapter nine In Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah is, says to King Ahab before this person, the, 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 the Messiah is old enough to choose between good or bad, no between good or bad. Um, this ver or excuse me, before this person in the court that was, that was, uh, he was talking about. Um, I'll explain that in just a moment, but it says a virgin shall be with child, right? So a virgin shall be with child. We've all heard that before. It's in every Christmas song uh, that the virgin was with child. Now, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary was a virgin. And I believe Isaiah chapter 9 speaks to that and prophesies about Christ. However, this prophecy is not a predictive prophecy in a traditional sense that's really going to work in apologetic circles. If anybody looks in the Old Testament and sees Isaiah chapter 9, you will see that it is not um, in the future there will be a per the Messiah will come and be born of a virgin. That's not what it says. As a matter of fact, I don't even believe that it should in the Old Testament it is the word virgin. It's not the word virgin. It's the word um, young woman. And so a young woman will be with child. So whenever Isaiah is talking to King Ahab, and King Ahab is um, is an evil king, and uh, he, he wants a sign that, that God is going to protect them, because Isaiah comes and says, God is going to protect you. And, uh, and don't worry about the Assyrians is basically what he's saying. I know you're scared, King Ahab. The Assyrians are coming. I'm telling you, do not worry about it. That don't worry about that. Why? Because before that, this woman, 
and he's probably pointing at some woman in the in the crowd or in the court of the king or possibly even pointing to his own wife but before this woman is old enough or before excuse me before uh, this woman will be, a virgin will be with child, and before he is old enough to choose between good and evil, the Assyrians will be destroyed. That's the prophecy. Now, do you get it in the context? In the context, that's all it says in the Old Testament. All it says is Isaiah is making a promise to the king that God is going to destroy the Assyrians, and it, he will destroy the Assyrians, but before this young woman over here, who probably already was with child, has a child, and the child is old enough to uh, read, uh, know between good and evil. Read it. Read it in Isaiah chapter 9. Read it as if you've never read the Christmas story. You've never read the story about Christ. And uh, try to understand it, because that's the way that somebody who is an unbeliever is going to read that. Now, it's very encouraging to you and I, because it is prophetic but it's prophetic in a double in a, a a double referent way sometimes there is a double referent in the old testament to the new testament where what is said in the old testament finds fulfillment in christ in that that was a type of christ it is a the very very common way in the old, that the old testament the jewish people would uh look towards the future is they would have a typology and so it's really a typology. It's not a predictive prophecy because there's nowhere that says that in the future, the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Uh, in the context, it says young woman will be uh, have a child. And before he is old enough between choose between good and evil, the Assyrians will be destroyed. Isn't that an interesting? I mean, it's it really is more encouraging in a way if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's not going to have much apologetic value. There's another passage in Hosea that says, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's God talking in the context of the Old Testament uh, in Hosea. Whenever he says, out of Egypt have I called my son, he is talking about calling Israel out of Egypt. That's the context. That's all it is. Now, whenever you go to the New Testament, Matthew applies that to Christ. Whenever Christ has to go down to Egypt to hide from King Herod, and then he says, out of Egypt have I called my son because he brings his son back. Now, at that time, we know that that's the bigger fulfillment. But without, without seeing Christ, without knowing that, we're not expecting that to be fulfilled, just like we weren't expecting something more than that young woman who was in the king's court to have a child there, and the Assyrians to be destroyed. But you're not expecting it. As a matter of fact, in the fourth century, the Antiochians, a great school of thought, one of the, the unfortunately demeaned um, and seen as heretical very early on. And so they were set aside their way of interpreting the Bible, but they caught up on this and they said, we have got to distinguish between predictive prophecy and, and uh, prophecy. That's a typology. So that's number one. We need to do that. We need to make sure that whenever we're talking to people, it's fine to use prophecy, but make sure it's a predictive prophecy. Make sure it's something like Isaiah chapter 53 that is much, much more clear that says in the future and clearly points to the Messiah. That may have a double reference as well, but probably just points to the Messiah. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can do a Daniel chapter nine. There's uh, passages in the Psalms, but make sure it's predictive prophecy. 
um, and just uh, go straight to that. Don't use the word 300 prophecies uh, because they might look it up. Just go to just go to Isaiah 53 and read it to them and let them know written 700 years before Christ. We've got manuscripts that date at least 150, probably 200 years before Christ. So we know this was before Christ. Okay. Now let's, let's talk about this one. This one I wrote a blog on. So if you want to go to creohouse.org, I wrote a blog on it today and it is the statistical likelihood of creation. That's what I'm calling the overstating apologetics here. And what I mean by this is that whenever I say that is a, an apologetic overstatement, we sometimes talk about the anthropological principle how likely it is that life could evolve here on earth or be on earth. What has to happen? Well, all the factors that have to be in place for life to actually be, uh, for us to be living and breathing, you know, the, the distance of the moon, the distance of the sun, the place we are in our galaxy, the, the, uh, the type of air that we have, the amount of water that we have. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and if anything changes, if any of these changes, then we could not have had life on earth. So we'll talk about the statistical probability. How likely is it that something like this could happen? And we'll use phrases like, well, the statistics are one in 10 to the 200th power or something like that, uh, which is basically one in 10 with 200 zeros after it. And sometimes it is that much. I mean, we're talking about it is a very, very, very unlikely situation. I know that the anthropological principle, and I know that it's true, that it is very, very unlikely that life could evolve here on earth or be on earth, survive on earth, that we could be sitting here doing this podcast right now. It is unlikely. But let me tell you something. This is the way that the person who you are talking to, the unbeliever, this is the way that they may think. If they're smart, if they're really thinking it through, and you need to be ready with this. I'm not saying not to use that. I'm not saying not to say those things, just like with the uh, prophecies. Use that uh, in the sense of understanding it for yourself, and you you got to qualify everything, though. And this one, you're going to have to say, listen, um, I understand. Here's what they're thinking. I've had people say this to me. As a matter of fact, I was talking to my son today about this very thing and, and I, I didn't bring it up to him. I just wanted to see what he would think. And then, uh, he brought it up. He knew exactly right then what to say. And he said, you know, uh, dad, the statistical probability of that is, is, is enormous, but at the same time, the statistical probability of you and I sitting here having this conversation is probably just as big or bigger. And that is true. I mean, what, just think of all the things that have to be in place right now for all this situation, this very situation, what is happening right now, what all has to be in place for it. I mean, my hair, who, who would know that my hair was going to be, you know, kind of all messed up like this and every single strand of it in the exact position it is right now. What is the likelihood that, that somebody could in the future predict that this was going to happen, that 
that I was going to be sitting at a brown desk, that I was going to be talking into a Canon camera, that I was going to be uh, pushing this through all of these different venues that, I mean, we could just go on and on. My curtains are black. Uh, you know, this room is this size. Every single thing you put into play is the way it is. Uh, if you were to go to the past and try to predict the likelihood of everything that's going on right now and everything around me, in the whole world happening, you would say this statistical probability is astronomically low, but it's happening right now. It is happening. So here's the problem is that statistical improbabilities happen every single day. And we, we need to understand that doesn't mean it's not incredible because somebody predicted this in the past. Well, like whenever you say, let, let's say the prophecies about Christ. Sometimes people look at the prophecies of Christ and they use this. I think it's Peter Stoner, a very popular uh, uh, illustration to use. But Peter Stoner took five of the prophecies about Christ and said, or eight of the prophecies about Christ. I'm not sure which one number it is. You can look it up, Peter Stoner, prophecies about Christ. But uh, I think it may be, let's just say seven. Seven of the prophecies about Christ. And he says, how likely is it that this would come true? And he would say, let me tell you the likelihood of these five prophecies, just five of the 300, just five coming true. They are, it's as like, here, here's the likelihood. If you were to get in a, you know, if you were to mark a silver dollar and you were to fill Texas, the entire state of Texas up two foot deep, deep with silver dollars and have somebody place this in a random spot you don't know about. And you get in a helicopter and you fly around the state of Texas until it runs out of gas. And then you reach down and pick it up. That's the same likelihood of these five prophecies about Christ coming true. Now, I have no idea how he came up with that or how you even measure the likelihood. I mean, we all know it's very, 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 very unlikely for anybody to be able to. It, it doesn't just happen by chance. And we also know that I'm not sitting here by chance either. And everything that is happening, it's not just a random event. But at the same time, you've got to understand what they are thinking. Random events happen all the time. But uh, how, how do you make yours, how do you see yours as more extraordinary than us sitting here right now? The overstatement comes because we don't really know how to answer that sometimes. But what we have to understand is that whenever somebody predicts something beforehand, whenever somebody says this is what will happen in the future, that adds, it, it's, it comes down to this. If, if I were to flip a coin, don't have a coin or I'd flip it here. If I were to flip a coin and... Uh, uh, what was, what is likelihood to come up heads? I call it heads. You say 50, 50. Well, what if I flipped it twice? What's the likelihood that it would come up heads? Well, it's probably, it's 25%. I'm not a math guy, but I think that's probably right. It's a 25% chance. Well, what is it if I flip it five times or eight times or 10 times? What if, what if I was to say, let's make a bet. I bet you I can flip this coin 10 times and it comes up heads every time. Would you take that those odds? Well, of course you would. Yeah. I don't know how, how unlikely it is, but it's probably one in one, one in a hundred or I don't know. 
somebody else can figure that out. One in a million, let's say. But let's let's keep on going just so we can make sure we understand the full force of this argument. What if I were to say, let's flip this coin 100 times, and I bet you it comes up heads every time. With all the factors the same, there's nothing intervening. There's nothing that's pulling it towards heads. It's a 50-50 chance every time, but a 50-50 chance for 100 times comes up heads. Would you take that bet? You say, oh, absolutely. You know, any day of the week, I would take that. I don't know what the numbers are on that, but that is incredibly unlikely. Is it? Is it possible? Well, I mean, yes, it's possible from the standpoint of statistics, but are statistics the best thing to use at this point? I mean, because here we go again. I say, it. The, the you remember the, the uh, Dumb and Dumber, and I, I don't remember the exact words of the scene, but Jim Carrey's character is asking this girl if what are the chances that she'll go out with them? And she said, one in a million. And instead of getting depressed about it, he goes, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so he got excited because there, he thought there was no chance. But if it's one in a million, he's got a chance and he's 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 happy about it. So that's kind of what you're saying sometimes. If I flipped a coin one hundred times and it came up heads what's the chances of it one in a billion i don't know probably not even that probably one in 100 trillion but in the end that he may say so you're saying there's a chance and i think there's a principle that we can live by with regard to this because this is something in the future this is something that i'm kind of predicting i'm going to get heads uh 1000 times 1 million times whatever um if you we're predicting in the future and then if there's not there's a principle out there that says this improbability on top of improbability equals impossibility and that is true if could anybody ever flip a coin one billion times in the same way I've been talking about this, one billion times, and it come up heads. What about one trillion? You can just go on as far as you, you want to go. There is a possibility statistically, but there is no chance. I'm not saying there's a chance by saying this. Do you get what I'm saying? There's really no chance at all uh, whenever you're predicting something in the future for that to come true in that way. There's nobody to predict. There's nobody that predicted everything that was going to happen right here, right now, the way I talked about earlier. So it doesn't, it's not an illustration, but um, I think it's really good to say, tell people that and help them to understand it. I think the coin flipping is a really good illustration as well, because they would say it is absolutely impossible in the end for anybody. It, 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 if you say it's a statistical possibility, it doesn't matter if you go by an infinite number of years, an infinite number of tries, it will never, ever happen. It will never, you'll never be able to flip a coin uh, a trillion times and get heads every time, period. Improbability on top of improbability equals impossibility. Okay, so uh, one more. What is my last one? My last one is, has to do with manuscripts of the Bible. And uh, like I said, it's hard to overstate the apologetics of our the area of textual criticism because we are so incredibly confident whenever it comes to the manuscripts of the Bible, whenever it comes to the what we have in our hands, the question is, is what we have in our hands whenever we read it today what was actually written? 
And I say that this is something where it's, we're very strong. It's very strong. We can be very confident, but at the same time, we also can overstate it. And let me tell you how we overstate it. And if somebody's in the know what they are thinking once again, um, because there will be people in the know and we'll end up having mud on our face. If we, if we don't preempt these things, we will often when we talk about the manuscripts of the Bible, we'll compare it to the manuscripts of other ancient works like uh, Homer's Iliad um, or, or uh, the Gallic Wars or uh, Tacitus, something of ancient antiquity that was written. We will compare the Bible to, which is fine. And we will say Homer's Iliad, the earliest copy we have was 800 years or 1500 years after Homer's Iliad was written. And so that's a 1500 year gap for it to change, which is true. And we only have 800 and something copies of Homer's Iliad. This is copies before the invention of the printing press. So we got 800 copies and we've got a 1500 year gap that that's not too bad. I mean, it's, it sounds bad, but if you are a, somebody who does textual criticism and tries to reconstruct originals, you know, this isn't that bad because, uh, you can kind of reconstruct it from different, uh, geographic families, uh, where they're located and how many there are. And as long as they're spread out, it's very, very helpful. And we can be confident in a lot of things like that. And then check the the similarity between the two and maybe not 100% confident but of course we can be confident that when we read Iliad that was what was actually written mostly uh, there may be a few things here or there but whenever it comes to the Bible uh, let's compare the Bible and Homer's Iliad is actually the closest of the, of the antiquities to the Bible the closest thing that we can compare as far as having evidence it's the it's the second highest evidence out there is 1,500-year gap and 800 copies. So we set that aside and we say, well, what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is much, much different because we have, oh, so much more. We have, we often call it an embarrassment of riches whenever it comes to all we have to reconstruct the New Testament. We have over, let, let, let's go with the gap first. Let's see if I can get this on, the, on film. I don't know if I can. Which way do I go? This way. See up here in the upper upper right-hand corner, that is uh, my facsimile of P52. P52 is a manuscript that was found that is made out of papyri. We actually, I actually sell those on the Credo Course website. I make them myself, uh, but they're, and they're very accurate as far as the way they look. But that is P52, and that is the earliest copy of any portion of the Bible that we have, maybe written uh, around in, in the second century sometime. So we've got within 100 years, not 1,500 years, we're within 100. And this could go, we could say it's even within 50 years. Now, there's some new, there's some new works going on about that. I don't want to overstate it and break my very principle right here. And I, uh, this is just now kind of getting stated. But uh, we used to think there was only like a 25-year gap on that one. But now I think we're thinking more of a 75-year gap. And we need to state the evidence the way it is, not the way it best defends our position. We are not 
uh, uh, we are not trying to confirm our prejudice. We're not trying to only put forth the best of and hiding the worst of. That's what this whole principle is that I'm talking about in overstating apologetics. But that is a very, very early manuscript. And if we've got it within 100 years, um, and we've got also, that's not the only copy, we've got, we've got dozens, hundreds, even thousands of copies. So beforehand, we talk about Homer's Iliad. And Homer's Iliad, how many copies do we have? 800. How many of the New Testament do we have? Well, of the New Testament, we've got over 6,000 manuscripts that we have found so far, and we're still finding them all the time, 6,000 manuscripts that date back before the invention of the printing press. That doesn't even count all of the, the translations and all of the all of the quotes from the early church fathers, see all those books behind me that are color-coded uh, with the statues on top, uh, the, the red, the green, the blue, those are all the early church fathers. And I could look through there, and that's the first 400 years of the church, uh, that what the church fathers wrote. And I could show you all the places where they quote the Bible. So those count. Those date back before the invention of the printing press. We have, we have um, those... And, and we can go to the manuscripts of those. Uh, now, we do textual criticism for them, too, first. But, and then we also have, we also have um, uh, translations, translation of the Bible. The Bible, is, New Testament, is translated in many, many different languages very, very quick. And so we have lots and lots of manuscripts that are in other languages. Altogether, I think we have somewhere around 25,000 examples. And again, we're finding them more and more all the time. So we can leave it there, but we do have to make an honest confession here. This is very important. I think, I think for our integrity, you have to make an honest confession. It doesn't diminish at all the, the accuracy that we have of the Bible. We are, we are so accurate. It's embarrassing. That's basically what I'll say. The Bible, the old new Testament is so accurate. It's embarrassing. And we can get to the Old Testament that the New Testament authors wrote. So therefore that established or uh, read. So therefore that establishes that it's, it's great. Uh, talk about that more in detail in my bibliology and hermeneutics class, but when we can talk about it more later on, but it's, it's, it's embarrassing how much we have, but at the same time, you have to understand whenever I use P 52 up there as an example that is the earliest one. And we don't have many that are within the first four centuries. I'm not sure the exact number that we have um, of, of manuscripts. Some of them are very full manuscripts, like an entire Bible of Codex Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. Um, but we, we have maybe maybe within the first five centuries, we have, we have a lot less, under 100. I, I can't remember the amount that we have, but it's not 5,000. It's not 6,000. It's not 25,000. Maybe even down into the tens, you know, the, like, uh, like 20 or 25 manuscripts that are for the first four centuries, which is incredible. It really is because they're all over the place and they're so important. And we have more than that as it goes. I mean, it doesn't mean that the later ones aren't important, but usually the earlier ones are the most important. And then the uh, later ones help establish both the, uh, um, the, the older ones. Did I say newer ones? Older ones. 
but there, there's all there's all kinds of things that goes into text criticism. Fascinating subject, and um, I, I suggest all all Christians study textual criticism at least get their their head around what it is. But we can't overstate our case and act like all six thousand manuscripts that we have, or all twenty five thousand manuscripts that we have, go all the way back to the same date as that P fifty two. They don't. And I think sometimes I hear people overstating it. And I know that whenever somebody else is studying it or listening, they say, yeah, they're not really being honest because, because they don't really all go back that far. Just a few of them go back to the first four or five centuries of the church. And so therefore I don't trust anything he says. And here's the principle. I know we're out of time, but here's the basic principle. Whenever you overstate things, people lose lose you lose credibility people will not listen to you anymore they may be nice they uh may not say anything but they'll quit listening to you i will you're the same way if i know something and somebody overstates their case i'm like oh they're just trying to confirm what they already believe and so they're not being honest with their faith why should i trust anything else they say and this is something that shrunk and white in their in their in their standard book on how to write the standard book, Shrunk and White, on how to write, has a paragraph that says, um, do not use italics too much, basically. Uh, because whenever you use italics too much, you're overstating too much. Can you imagine getting a paragraph and seeing this paragraph, and it just has everything in italics, like every other word? And you've probably seen something like this. You've seen it whenever people put all caps, everything in caps. I mean, that's against the social norms and the social rules. We hate it. Why? Because it's you're yelling, you're overstating everything. You're, you don't have a calmness about you. You have no demeanor about you. So we do not put all things in caps. We do not put all things in, in italics because not all, all, all things, not all things are in italics. Not all things should be in italics. Only certain things. We only push certain things really, really hard. We, like I said, Isaiah 53, I will push that. I will put that in italics. I won't put all the prophecies in italics, but I will put Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter nine. I will put those in italics and I'll explain them, um, to the people. Uh, we, we do not over overstatement is just a common fault that we have to rid ourselves of. We have to be conscious of it. It has to be something we learn about before we even get into this stuff and telling other people because it can lose the the object of your love whenever you speak about it. You can have no credit anymore by the time you get there because you have overstated so many things. And the object of our faith, the most important thing in our faith, the most important element of our faith, who is Jesus Christ, you may have overstated everything up to that point. And then you talk about Christ and you want to tell how, how wonderful he is and how he has changed your life and how, how, uh, how much you believe the resurrection and how much proof we have for the resurrection. You got no more credibility. It's too late. And so people won't listen to it. You save up your credibility. You save up your italics. Don't say it until it's necessary. Don't say it until it's something that's really important. The Antiochians knew this in the fourth century, but we still haven't quite learned it. So we often, and I know why we do it. We do it because we're excited. We do it because we believe this stuff. 
but at the same time, let everybody else do it. Everybody over it. It's not Christianity that do it. We do this in every area. It should be something a norm in our life, though, where we have uh, a demeanor about our presentation, our demeanor about our evangelization, and always conscious of what other people are thinking. Uh, listen, folks, I'm so happy you are here. Thank you so much. Uh, hope hope you've been able to stay here live and you enjoyed it. Uh, or those who are listening afterwards, hope you enjoy it. Uh, please make sure that you come and uh, head to the Patreon page. Just check it out and see what all I've got on Patreon because it is... It, 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 you can get access to so much material for such a good deal and you can become a member of a great community and you can support me. You can support what I'm doing and that's what I need. Patreon page again is up here. If you're viewing it, just take a photo of that or how, however you do it and, um, or go to patreon.com forward slash C Michael Patton. I would really appreciate it. Make sure, sure that you subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to it at and we will see you next time thanks so much god bless theology 